history. Rabbi Blyweiss, this is lecture number 82. The Badak is, uh, his full name is Rabbi David ben Yosef Kimchi, lived in Norbone, one of the, one of the Gedolim from South France. His Perush, he actually has a Perush on Chumash, on Novi, on Tehillim, on Dibra Hayomim, not entirely, not, not necessarily the whole Tanakh, close, and especially his Perush on Novi is considered uh, definitive to the point that many say uh, the uh, Mishnah in Kemach in Taira, without flour, bread, in other words, you won't have Torah, applies to the Redak, who is, of course, his last name is Kimchi. Play on words, right? So without without the kimchi, without radak, one can't have taira. Why? Uh, first of all, his perush is fundamental. It's 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 basic pshat. Um, some compare it with Rashi's or maybe the Mitsudos as well. It is. Um, it also includes many of the lost classics. It's famously, Rav Sa'ajigon has a perush on, on the Navi. Rav Shririgaon, I mentioned this before, uh, had a perush on the Navi. We don't have their perush, but we do have the Radak, and he incorporates them. Um, the Radak is, we haven't heard so many about, uh, so many defenders. We've talked about a lot of the critics of the Rambam. So the Radak is one of the earlier defenders of the Rambam. I mean, it was one of those arguments that really people took sides. And he's he's much he's younger. His, his dates are eleven sixty to twelve thirty five. But he was clearly uh, in that camp. He also is very brave, very very uh, unusual personality, very witty person. Also, he has these barbs against Christ, Christ, um, Christianity, and because he's so harsh, his comments were often censored by the church. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, they were saved, and we have we have many of them. They'd be later republished. I'll give you one example. Um, they do whatever they do, twisting words, especially of psukim. Um, they understand most of the Tanakh as a, a series of references to Yashka. So, for example, the Pasuk in Tehillim tells us, Asaprat el chok Hashem amar elai b'niyata ani hayom You're my son, and today I gave birth to you. Right, what they, they love reading these kinds of things. They can read into it, the, the Son of God kind of things. Sha'alam, we, we, we saw that uh, there is no such concept. A bit fundamental to the Rambam's anima means is there's no such idea. Um, and, then, and then the Apostle goes on and says, Sha'almi many, ask for me, my son, v'etna goyim nachlasecha. And I'll give you, you know, the goyim, their portion is your portion, and so on. So that the Radak turns on them, they say, you know, you want to say that this is a reference to God speaking to his son and his son asking for stuff from God. He says, if, he says first of all, his son, as it's true, clearly, evidently, throughout many psukim in the Tanakh, is his son Yisrael, the Jewish people who are called Bonim, as we say, as Rabbi Kiva teaches us in the Mishnah Birke Avos, where, where they uniquely called his son. Uh, it's also referring to other, uh, it refers to other brios, Anyway, he concludes, if Yashka is himself God, as the church likes to say, why would Yashka then ask to ask anything of God? None of it makes any sense. And he has, he has other very sharp uh, critiques. I mentioned the Yad Ramah. Uh, his, his dates are 1170 to 1244, slightly younger than the Redak. His full name is Ravmer Abu Lafia of Toledo, Spain. He writes a major work of, of halacha called the Yad Ramah. He has a perush and shas that incorporates a lot of Kabbalah. Uh, 
he was one of the one of the staunch opponents of the Mornavulchim. So as we meet figures in this period, whose side were you on? Were you with the Rambam or against him? So the, the, the Ramah was was definitely mostly against him. He was against philosophical study in general. And was this before the Zohar? Well, I mean, before the Zohar officially was, was published. Yes, this is before the publication of the Zohar by Rav Moshe de Leon. Correct. But again, this, we're, we're focused here not so much on Kabbalah. He's focused on philosophical study, which he saw as the root of assimilation, as the source of assimilation. There is something that's... I, I just happened to quote this at lunch because uh, we were talking about Mashiach and Rabbi Shushan's shir that was just quoted about predicting the end. And I, I think this is very instructive. There is a Mishnah at the end of Sota that, uh, and we're going we're gonna to certainly uh, consider it at the, end of this, at the end of this series when we consider the end of days, the Mishnah predicts a lot of interesting, compelling things that seem to be coming true today. And you read it, you think, oh, oh, could be. Wow, this is, this is really uh, striking. So you read the Adrama on that Mishnah, and he says, he reads this Mishnah, and he's convinced that it's an absolutely specific detailed description of his own generation and that therefore it must be that Mashiach must be around the corner and I find that interesting and actually really helpful and I imagine I might wind up coming back to this a few times too because one sees that in human nature we often perceive Mashiach as around the corner which is good I always wait for him and then we're supposed to be expecting but these predictions and, and we, we talked about this in, in Gemara here yesterday that often we hear predictions that the next month Mashiach is going to come or variations therein and it turns out the next month he doesn't come okay we can forgive ourselves for being human and for not necessarily know and we, knowing and we don't know the end of days precisely uh, and we're living in constant expectation and Listen, life is so hard and these people can't be faulted for considering that can't go on longer than this. Uh, it, how much worse could it possibly get? get? Said the Yad Ramah in the 12th century, uh, well, a lot worse. Now, uh, meanwhile, back in Eretz Israel, the Crusaders are holding ground. They, uh, they wax, they wane in Eretz Israel. I'm not going to go through all the... Um, all of their uh, particular trials, they, um, they're going to have decreasing success. We're going to see the rise of Salahadin and his own dynasty, the Ayyubids, uh, that will ultimately in 1187 defeat the, um, the crusaders at Karne uh, Chitim, up above the Kinneret, uh, and the crusaders are forced to withdraw, and, 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 but they're not entirely defeated. We know that um, the Crusaders, the Crusades themselves, this whole period that lasts something like 200 years, will be, the, will be yet another excuse for further attacks against the Jews. So, for example, during what was called the Second Crusade, which is 1147, uh, and then again in, in the Third Crusade in 1189, there would be pogroms mainly against French Jews. That's where a lot of Jews were living that devastate them, massacres, and how often in history can we tell stories of massacres without just sounding trite and redundant? Because once you've seen once you've seen, you've seen them all, and especially we of the post-Shoah generation, uh, you call that a massacre? That's nothing. 
kind of attitude that we have, but uh, no, it's just, it's never, it doesn't let up. And each death of each Jew is, a, is an individual tragedy. In 1179, the church, continuing its decrees, forbids the following. They have a council that forbids formally non-Jews uh, are not allowed to be servants for Jews. Christians are not allowed to take a Jewish midwife, and Jews are not allowed to take uh, Christian midwives. Uh, Non-Jews are, are forbidden from sleeping in Jewish homes or Jewish hotels. And among other things, these, these have very strong negative financial ramifications for Klal Yisrael, as these become, these become uh, more professions that Jews will not make a living pursuing. There will be uh, later councils, and some of the decrees include uh, forcing Jews to wear special garb. You remember that, that was something the Muslims did, and now the Christians catch on? Right, that was the Muslim innovation, the, the triangle. The Christians will follow that eventually. The Jews are finally expelled from France altogether in 1182. They're allowed to come back in 1198. And that process repeated. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to leave now. You can come back, but you're gonna have to leave again, and you can come back. One wonders, yeah, the, the, the question that's not rhetorical is, why did they bother? Why come back to a place where the pattern is set up? And the answer is, what were your alternatives? We didn't have a homeland. And there were, there were benefits to living in France, not, not the least of which was an established Torah community. How would the French be making that? Oh, by official decree. That Jews are welcome back in their Correct, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. They'd be expelled in 1306. It was during that expulsion that the Kaft of Aferach left. We'll meet him, we'll meet him soon. Uh, they'd be expelled again in 1394. They're expelled in a significant way in 1420 from Lyon. And at that point, the only Jews left in France are in the area of Provence. So, so the expulsions were, were, were quite definitive. But even in the modern day, most of French Jews that we see today are actually not uh, long-standing French Jews. Most of them actually were from French colonists, colonies in North Africa. They're, they're Maghreb Jews who, who after, uh, after the expulsions following the state of Israel, when the um, Muslim-ruled countries did not tolerate the Jews, many of the Jews went to Eretz Israel, but many, many were in exile and went up to France. And what were, let's say, historically French Jews either assimilated, were murdered in the Holocaust, or emigrated. So France is not a place, uh, not, not a happy place for our people and the French people, as many people who are historically quite anti-Semitic. But it doesn't stay up in France. Another one of the um, most anti-Semitic of all countries was just across the channel, of course the English Channel, um, Britain, uh, has never been a very good place for the Jews, even though there's been a Jewish population in, or, in and around Britain. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight some of, the, some, of the, some of the harsh decrees. In 1144, we find the Norwich blood libel is the first major blood, called the Norwich blood libel in 1144. It's the first of many such blood libels. And it's the first one, it's not a new idea. We've heard of blood libels in the past, but it's the first, let's say, relative, in the Middle Ages, at least modern for that time, blood libel that would have huge ramifications. I'll tell you the story in a moment. 
Uh, it's going to result in massacres of Jews, in mass expulsions of Jews. Uh, it's, it's, it's a terrible tragedy. And it, it, the story is something like this. Of course, the blood libel, like most blood libels, was based on the ancient canard that, um, based on pagan practice, pagans indeed used child, child blood for their sacrifice, for their, uh, for, the, for, the, for their proceedings, for their paganism. So they, of course, pin that on the Jews. How ironic, the Jewish people, the first in the world to rise up against pagan paganism, that we would be slurred, we would be slurred with this uh, and accused of this practice that has absolutely couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, we drain the blood from our animals, eating blood is a Torah prohibition. We have, we have less to do with blood even of animals, certainly not human beings, than any nation that walks the world. And so ironically, our enemies would, would slur us by, uh, by, by accusing exactly uh, of this, of this, of this uh, heinous crime of using blood and children's blood, no less. Yeah? Was the blood level specifically against that? I thought it was more against like Jews killing Jesus. No, the blood libel was like this, and I'm going to tell the story in a moment. The, the following is the classic, almost um, cliched version of the blood libel, as you'll hear. So... Um, I mean, of course, it was easy to get the Jews because you could scapegoat them. We could, you could accuse them of just about anything. This is our word, too. What's that? The scapegoat. The scapegoat. It's also our word. Right, right, right. It was a seal la-amishtaleach, seal la-azazel. In this case, there was a child by the name of William who, when we study it, what sounds like, it sounds like that the boy had epileptic, epileptic seizures. And ultimately, he dies. Of epile- I mean, what it seems to be epilepsy, and then word goes out the Jews bled him to death. Wow! And it's the easiest thing in the world. Everybody will believe you. It's sort of like if you watch the coverage of the Gaza Strip and the and the general Palestinian Israeli conflict, the Arab Israeli conflict, where they could make up the most far fetched. Out, out, out of uh, uh, beyond reason kind of stories, but because the world is so prone to believe anything that's anti-Jewish, it suddenly becomes true. And so word goes out that the Jews are child killers, and uh, they bled him to death so they could make their matzah with the blood. William is benight, is 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 uh, beatified, meaning he's made a saint. They attribute miracles to him. You know, Saint William, the kid, the epileptic kid who died. As much as They don't open their eyes and see that the majority of Jews in the world are doing only good things. When you want, it's a great question that you ask. Don't they? Don't they see the reality that it couldn't be further from the truth? And the answer is no. When you want to see something, it becomes it becomes a fact on the ground. Part of the problem where anti-Semitism, you can study it in the world today. One of the one of the patterns that you find is that some of the most anti-Semitic places are places where the people themselves have never met Jews. And since in these days, and throughout most of our history, most people actually had not met Jews, we were ghettoized, there was little interaction. All they knew of Jews in Claudia Israel was what their pastors, their preachers preached. And of course, that was all, that was all um, canards and lies. The, um, and of course, the end result were, um, were massacres, not just one. Throughout, throughout uh, what we consider Great Britain today, Jews would be expelled. That was 1144. 
Now, in 1189, another noteworthy date, this is the time that Richard the Lionhearted uh, rises and is about to Robin leave. Hood. Around that period, yeah. Uh, the Third Crusade is about to come. The, when we say the Crusade, we're talking about the next uh, infusion of Crusaders to come to fortify the weakening hold that the, that the previous Crusaders have on Eretz Yisrael and the Holy Land. So this is all coming at the same time, and there's obviously a lot of uh, there, there are a lot of strong rallies to try to get support. One of the ways, notoriously, that evil kings throughout history, including today, get support from their masses is and kill the Jews. To which the the mass of the crowds respond, "Yes, kill the Jews." Again, the easy scapegoat. I mean, the, the it would be the stuff of of, of a good stand-up comedy routine. If it weren't, if it, if we could somehow take some kind of distance from it, it's it's so mindless. There's no logic to it, but and it's the same story repeated everywhere. And part of what's convinced him, Daniel, as well, to answer your, your earlier question, is that everybody knows this is true. I mean, after all, these stories are true around the world. Is what they tell themselves. The Muslims don't get into this. Throughout most of history, they don't have these anti-Semitic canons the ones that we're describing, but they themselves will start falling prey to them beginning that really in the 19th century. And part of their logic is, hey, listen, we didn't make this up. This is all the stuff from the Christian world. We're just, we're just yeah, believing you know, what's true around the world. If, 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 all of if these fairy tales. Like you, can, you could bring that up. But it's, for example, Israel versus Palestine. Okay. The terrorists. Okay. And all of a sudden, I'm a pro-terrorist. They are terrorists. How can they be better than anybody? Right. Well, that's because you've been persuaded, but they're not persuaded. They believe the Jews are terrorists, and because they're primed what to was believe the that the Jews are terrorists. Anywhere with a bomb and Don't confuse logic with the discussion, yeah, please. Yeah, but, yeah, but not serious. By the way, by the way, we're going to get when we get to the modern era, and we try, I try as best I can to stay away from. Well, this level of conversation is reasonable and fine. But in, in the modern era, what I really would like to give you and to present to you is a lot of um, detailed, factual histories about what actually transpired so that we could discuss this, we could discuss the modern times with intelligence and information, uh, not, just, not just pontificate as people like to do. They like to just sound off without much knowledge and background. That's, we're trying to, that's our antidote. We're trying to provide the antidote here by giving, giving some solid information. And we're going to see that there's almost something supernaturally irrational about the way the enemies of the Jews think and believe and the patterns they follow. And one finds already at this phase, pretty much the die is cast. And, there's, and the pattern that we see emerging is one that's going to become painfully familiar. Yeah. That was one of uh, Reverend Susan's main uh, thesis statements at the end of the world thing. Yes. He said, how can, how can every single nation rationally attack Israel? This is because it's been inside the mindset and for so long. It's been inside the mindset so long, and it's really, that is, I, I, I quoted this before, I'm quoting Rabbi Kiva Tatz, quoting somebody from the UN, he said, he, he quoted once, um, I don't know, one, one of the, um, one of the protests, one of the, one, of the, one of the times that the UN voted to condemn Israel and Israel's actions, so the uh, Speaker of the UN got up and said rhetorically, can it be that the entire civilized free world is somehow wrong and Israel alone is right, and um, is what he said, and 
honestly. I, I mean, I, I'm not one to defend all of Israel's actions. Israel does a lot that's plenty wrong, and maybe in this case they happen to have been wrong. But and let's, let's take it as a general statement. The truth, we would answer, absolutely that's the case, sir. In fact, that's, the, that's our theme song. Avram Avinu stood against the world. And yes, in that case, the entire world was totally wrong in their paganism, and Avram was, yes, totally right. And that's our theme song, that we, we take a lonely stand of, of rightness, of correctness, of ethics against the, uh, the, the evil that, that dominates much of the rest of the world. So Richard the Lionhearted is being coronated king in 1189, and the public sentiment is, has been rallied. It's extremely anti-Jewish. Uh, it's extremely pro-crusader. And the night of his coronation, there is a Jewish group of representatives present, and the mob at the coronation sets itself upon the Jewish delegation and murders them all. And the new king watches does nothing to stop their policemen present. He does not summon them, and the murderers are not prosecuted. This is what the king tolerates, and that's just okay, because they're Jews. That's what you do. There would be other attacks, obviously. If that's the nature, I mean, essentially, the king is giving a green light to massacres everywhere. You can perform, you can do all this with impunity, of course, poor people have license to go attack Jewish businesses in order to, uh, to, 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 to steal and to be able to, to, to gain whatever they will gain. And again, there are no recriminations. It's like the basis of welfare. Yeah. So this takes place throughout England. There are massacres of Jews in Norwich, London, York, uh, all the way into 1190. Um, it's the first time in history that the term Holocaust is used to describe the events. It's, it's a dubious term. It's, it comes from hollow, a burnt offering. A holocaust is a burnt offering referring to an ancient pagan practice. Here, of course, the Christians are using the Jews as their pagan offering. In York, most famously, Jews take, this is a horrific story, uh, Jews will, all the Jews present take refuge uh, from some kindly non-Jews uh, offer, offer a safe refuge in a tower called Clifford's Tower and the mob descends upon the tower and they don't know what to do. Um, many Jews inside the tower decide to kill one another rather than to submit themselves before the mob. Not everybody agrees and so some don't kill, the, don't, kill don't take part in this uh, mutual suicide pact which is really a mass murder um, and the, those who remain and survive are indeed murdered by the mob. I don't know which option is, is better. The discussion of suicide in the post scheme, especially in the Middle Ages, will take on a certain poignancy in light of all of, all of this. Um, and, and the post scheme were generous and lenient when, when, it, when, it was, when it came to such situations of dying al Kiddush Hashem. Uh, in 1255, Little St. Hugh of Lincoln in England disappears. Well, that's what they said. See, another story, another account of the events was that he reappeared. That was fine. But they kind of like um, made his reappearance low-key because it was convenient to talk about little absent Hugh. And the story is almost identical to, to William's story. The Jews needed his blood. 
Um, the reason why this time it's important, I'm jumping a little in history. We're not at 1255 just yet, but as we're considering early British anti-Semitism, it's relevant. Uh, it's the first time in history that we find the civil government itself imposing the death sentence on Jews for so-called ritual murder that's never proved. And Jews are actually uh, condemned and executed by the courts for an accusation that, of course, has no, no relation to reality. In fact, historians, historians what, what could prompt this kind of behavior? Historians speculate that it was all King Henry III who actually was broke and needed the Jewish money. And how convenient, and again, you do this, and you only get, you only improve your, increase your own popularity with your, with your constituency. What are you going to say, Daniel? Oh, no, I was going to say that, um, that's what was going down, those people who were, uh, were giving their lives for this. Yeah. I'm so... This is this is this is what we just said. The, the last episode was 1255. The church is still fairly strong. It's, fairly it's the middle of the Crusader, but near the end of the Crusader times in, in Eretz Israel. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in 1290, a year or two before the final Crusaders withdraw from Eretz Hakodesh, all Jews are finally expelled from England. Uh, it's it's uh, trauma for the Jews worldwide, recognizing that this could happen, that you would just be entirely wholesale removed from it. And remember this, when, when you're expelled, you can, you can convert, die, or leave, and when you leave, you left everything behind, which often meant death too, on, as, as you were a homeless refugee, and it meant often starvation, especially for the babies, for the old people. Are you? So you just take anything? You can break one of your hands? You could try, good luck. As you as you pass through the mobs of hate of hateful uh, peasants, and you of course have no rights and no no protection. The um, this expulsion from England is is official, and it lasts all the way until 1655, when Oliver Cromwell brings the Jews back, which is a story we'll tell when we get to that point in history. That's a long period of absence of Jews. It doesn't mean that there were absolutely no Jews on the British Isles, but if they were there, it was unofficial and illegal, officially. Officially illegal, is my point. Officially unofficial. Yeah, sorry. Um, one can go, anybody ever been to Oxford before? Oxford has some of the most magnificent ancient manuscripts in their Bodleian Library. What's called the Bodleian Library in Oxford has some of the most gorgeous, and you can find Shakespeare, and Chaucer, all the classics. And you can find actually a lot of ancient, stolen Jewish manuscripts too, until today. They stole it then, and they have the chutzpah to maintain it till today, all these upstanding, civilized, PC Christians, British. Um, including, they have the, one of the oldest known copies of Rashi in the world, and they still hold on to it, even though... Just like those one, the marbles from Greece. Say it again? The, the marbles from Greece and they took like the... All kinds of things like this around the world. As far as we're concerned, when it comes to our holy svarim, you take, you, you know, you could destroy our buildings, it'll be hard on us, but we could can, we can, we can understand that we could live without it. You take our svarim, you take a ksav yad of Rashi, and you hold on to it till today, 2015? 
Well, it's not just the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Um, one finds the same story taking place in the Hermitage Library over in St. Petersburg, in Leningrad or St. Petersburg. Uh, the Vatican Libraries, we're going to see, has acquires many, many Jewish classics, often handwritten by the Gedolim themselves. Uh, meet Rabbeinu Yonah, whose dates are 1180 to 1263, which means he was, he was a young man when the controversy of the Rambam emerged. He lived in Catalonia, in what we consider Spain today. Among his um, famous relatives, he was a cousin of the Ramban, who I hope we'll also meet today. Rabbeinu Yonah is a familiar name. What do you, when I say Rabbeinu Yonah, what do you think of? Rabbeinu Yonah? Uh, okay, uh, Shari Tshuva, one of the world's greatest, uh, one of the, one of the oh, classics I, I of Musser. Uh, Rabbeinu Yonah has, has a very famous, important commentary on Pirkei Avos. In fact, Rav Tolbi, the Ali Shor, tells Yeshiva students that they have to learn four things if they are, um, if they want to have any basic competence in Jewish, in Jewish learning. Torah, uh, and one of the one of the four is Pirkei Avos with the with the commentary of Rabbeinu Yona. And he uh, burns. Right, 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 right. Don't give away the whole end of the story. Uh, but right, that's that's our story right now. He's also his students include the Rashba. He has a great commentary, not just on Pirkei Avos, but also on the Rif. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a taste. It's a classic and one, hopefully, I bless you and I wish upon you that you should all learn Shari Tshuva, one of the classics of Musser. Um, I don't want to just tell you that he wrote this great Musser book without giving you some feeling for it. So let me illustrate in the second section. Um, he has, he has an a understandably very famous discussion. He has a lot of famous parts. This is just one of them, um, in which he lists six catalysts to making tshuva. Very powerful piece. Don't forget, as you're eating these delicious sunflower seeds, check each one, as we learned this morning. Um, pumpkin seeds, a little easier. Only, only, only about 10% of them can be checked. And, and watermelon, I'm watermelon seeds is 10%. Pumpkin seeds are fine. We have a chazak unless you, unless you see, yeah, unless you find there, there's infestation with, with bugs, yeah. I heard, um, Saya told me that Rabbi Masters had said, like, you only have to check one in 10 of those. I heard that by sunflower seeds, too. This is, Dvorin this morning taught revised approach to this, which is, understand, is admittedly more machmir, although he is an expert, he certainly knows, knows what he's talking about. But some, you're right, some people say as long as, if you've checked a number of them and you find that there's, they're without bugs, then you could be lenient. Um, Number one, Rabbeinu Yonah tells us when bad things happen to us, when people experience suras, sarot, hardship, suffering, so our reaction is what? What are you supposed to say? Bad things happen to nice people. or not nice people. Any people. What, 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 is our, what is our reaction? We're supposed to understand that Hashem is punishing us for our sins. And that may sound almost obvious and redundant. Like, why do I have to say such a thing? But if you pay attention and you notice human behavior, you see that a lot of people don't take it that way. You say, why me? It's not fair. It can't be. No. If bad things are happening to you, you have to take a cheshbon nefesh, says the Rabbeinu Yonah. You, you have to take a spiritual inventory. The worst response that one can have is to assume that they're random events and that it's not fair and it should have happened to the other guy. I don't deserve it. And he says, if you have that reaction, it causes worse sorrows to, fall, to follow. 
Um, in fact, the proper reaction is to take pleasure, to delight in the suffering, because they show you, if you have the proper attitude, that Hashem encourages our tshuva, even though we've betrayed him, he's there with us, and it's like a divine patch, a little slap on the wrist, to tell you, you know, Arya, Bubala, I love you to pieces, and get your act together. That's how you should perceive the bad things happening to nice people. So, okay, it's Hashem there with you, Ashkacha Pratis, trying to help guide you towards the right path. Yeah? Is it a little bit masochistic to enjoy the suffering intended to you? It's not enjoying it for that sake. You're right. Masochism would say, ooh, good, blood, guts. That's not at all what Rabbeinu is saying. He's saying, if you have the proper attitude and perspective, you're able to see a Kaddish Baruch Hu in this as a, and, and say, I understand this is happening. There's probably a reason for it. To the best of your ability, you try to figure out why this could be happening and what you should, which midos you should be fixing. And, 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 in, and once you get that attitude, you see like, in this amazing world that Kaddish Baruch Hu takes the trouble to you know, do this to help straighten me out. Often you know when bad things happen to good people, I find this is not always the case, but when they respond well, often you look back in your life and you see that was a blessing in disguise. Baruch Hashem that took place because I wouldn't have become the person. Do you ever notice that people sometimes with severe physical handicaps or psychological difficulties or, 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 or circumstantial problems in their lives, they become orphans, let's say. Sometimes you meet those people and you find them to be ex- extraordinary human beings have a certain quality, a certain substance that other people don't have. And it seems to be almost born because of their pain, that they have that quality. They wouldn't have become that mensch, that fine person that worked out Sadiq without the pain. That's, I think, and it's that spirit that Rabbeinu is writing in. And if you have that, that actually causes a, more of a, a, a profound kind of simcha. Not a, ooh, good, yippee, pain simcha. Um, actually, I actually agree with that. It's not an absolute principle. There are exceptions to the rule, but I have that feeling too. Like you just described going to Camp Simple. I've had that experience. I don't know if other people here also feel that way, but people who have, who've really been around the block have real difficulties often have something to them that the average person does not. Number two, I'm, this is not, I'm not going to spend as much time on all of the principles. These are six catalysts to tshuva. Number two, he cites the Gemara Psochim that one of three people that Hashem despises the most is a um, promiscuous old man. The Gemara says that. Dirty old man. And uh, Rabbi picks up on that and says, age should mature you and should really make you a finer person. We find the opposite in the world. Age often makes a person um, jaded or bitter. Can you picture like a bitter old man or old woman? That's sadly very common. But Rabbeinu Yonah says, actually, when you, if you hit midlife crisis, this happens, you've heard of, it's a phenomenon documented. If you hit midlife crisis, Actually, the Jewish response is again tshuva. That should be yet another catalyst to tshuva. Oh, it's, you know, getting on 49 already and, uh, 40, and, and uh, not all that much time left. I better get, down to the mo- get around to the most important things in life. And it should prompt you to do a spiritual inventory. You should feel simple for having survived this long. Not everybody does. 
and it sh- you should move things around in your life. And so um, a decrepit old man who does not read the writing on the wall, does not read the signposts, is the ultimate failure in this department. Number three, you know, we hear good Musr all the time. I mean, Baruch Hashem, you're actually learning full-time in yeshiva, so you're, you're open to it frequently. Rebbein Yona points out in our lives, the opportunities for Musr come left and right. What, number three is whenever you hear Musr, you have to take it to heart and resolve to change. And again, some of these things sound so obvious and straightforward, but you know what most people do when they hear good Musr? They say, ooh, that's a great insight. And they file it away and then put it into storage. They don't do much about it. They say, wow, that was so, that was a great class. Wow, that's amazing. So you're going to do something about it? No. Most people say. So Vaniyana says, don't do that. If you change, he says, he writes, it's as if you've already changed. If you just by resolving, I'm going to make the change. Number four. Um, when you're learning Torah, when you're learning Musa, when you're learning these ideas, you should tremble. You should resolve, I'm going to do this. It's a corollary of number three, really. Number five, take advantage of the Aser Shemei Tshuva. There's a special spiritual mystical quality in the world that makes Tshuva, uh, it's more conducive, it's prime, and all you have to do is reach up and grab it, and it's there, it's there for the taking. Number six, he says, you should always incline your life every day, every minute towards Hashem. You never know when your time has come. And if you lead your life, as the Mishnah Perkyabos really says, that uh, uh, you'll make tshuva today, you don't know if tomorrow you're going to die, uh, that should be your attitude on a regular basis. Says Rebbein Yona in uh, Hilchos Tshuva. And I'm not done with Rebbein Yona. I'm going to tell now one of the dark stories of our past uh, it's referred to as the book burning in Paris. Barak made a reference to it. Um, and the background is really background that we talked about yesterday, which is the burning of the Rambam's books. Now, um, we know that many have been condemned, many, many have condemned not only the Mornavuchim, but Barak, pointed this out yesterday, um, parts of Sefer Mada are incredibly controversial. Um, Sefer Mada being a section of the Yad Chazaka, of the Mishnah Torah. Right, you so they have Torah, and not just the other sections are controversial. Among the strong critics, this is already a generation after Rambam's death. Rambam died in 1204. We're talking already in the 19, in the 1220s, the 1230s. Um, among the critics are Rab Shlomo of Montpellier and his student Rabbeinu Yonah. So Rabbeinu Yonah is part of the opposition to the Rambam. What do they have against the Rambam? Don't they see his greatness? I mean, for us, this sounds, this sounds like lunacy. How could anybody criticize the giants? But in those days, you have to realize Spain is really a problematic place, and there's a phenomenon, maybe we're familiar with this from America, but they're not used to this. All these Torah leaders seeing the assimilation of the Jews, their enthrallment with philosophy, with the, with the good life that existed for them, uh, in, in Spain, and uh, especially they have a strong tend towards physical luxuries, which is not a Jewish thing. It doesn't mean we, uh, we, don't, we don't reject this world in physicality, but we don't indulge in the luxuries. And, um, and, and the Spanish Jewish community is totally enthralled of the, uh, of the golden age and of, of the world around them and of the philosophy, 
And when asked, and because what's unlike America, most identify as Torah Jews. Most say, of course, we keep Torah and mitzvos, and they try to justify their stance on religious terms. And when asked to defend themselves, they say, oh, I hold like the Rambam. Because the Rambam becomes the self-justifier of the assimilated. So with this in mind, Rav Shlomo and his student Rav Yona um, revive the controversy. They issue a cherem. A cherem means an excommunication against anybody learning the Yad, the Yad Chazaka, which means the, the Mishnah Torah, which today is such a staple, it's impossible to even think that anybody would ever for, for, forbid it, uh, the Mor Nevuchim, and any other similar works. There are other works out there too. The Rambams were, of course, the center of the controversy. Some would even take the works and bring it to the non-Jews. This happened in the past too. They bring it to the Dominican Jews uh, who find them indeed blasphemous. They say, oh, you know, this contains uh, uh, calumnies against the church, as indeed they did. All of this leads to a head, and in the year 1234, in Montpellier, Montpellier the French authorities take out um, massive uh, amounts of copies of these books, most of them Rambams, and have a public burning of the holy books of the Rambam. And again, very much at the behest of these Gedolim, including Rubaini Yonah. You want to say something? No, I mean, you're probably going to get to it. Yeah. There's a bad guy on the horizon. His name is Nicholas Donan. He was a Jewish anti-Semite. They're the worst kind. We're going to meet a lot of them. <coughs> Meaning a Jew who went astray, who, you know, Jews can't really ever stay neutral because we have this nitzotz, we have this spark in us. So a Jew who's not using his spark for Hashem usually becomes threatened by real Jews and, um, and, and attacks them with, it, with the, an unprecedented venom. And that's his story, Nicholas Donan. Uh, he was put into Cherem by Rabbeinu Yechiel, who's another major name that you should uh, internalize, Rabbi Yechiel ben Yosef, in t- 1225. Um, and after this, Nichol- Nicholas joins the Franciscan order. Franciscans and Dominicans, they're different orders within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. They oppose one another, they have their own tensions. The Franciscans, maybe for our purposes, would be famous because they'll come to, the, um, to Eretz Yisrael and they'll... they'll proclaim themselves the custodia de terra santa, the custodians over the holy land, and a lot of the Christian holdings in and around Eretz Yisrael are in fact Franciscan. They have the Franciscan monks. They were among those who had monks. Many Christians have monks, but yes. Francis de Sisi, St. Francis, whatever they call him. Anyway, Nicholas becomes a Franciscan, and in 1236, two years after the book burning of the, the Rambam's books were burned, um, he oversees a horrific event. 500 Jews from the cities of Anjou and Poitiers are, are forcibly baptized and converted against their will to, to Catholicism. Um, 3,000 refuse. Meaning the 500 forcibly at threat of death, and so they say, okay, baptize this. 3,000 wouldn't even cooperate, and they're massacred al Kiddush Hashem under the, uh, under the leadership of Nicholas Donan. He, Nicholas Donan is the one who brings the Talmud to Pope Gregory the Ninth in Rome. With all of its blasphemies, he points out to the Pope all those terrible uh, statements about Yoshka and Mary, the Virgin Mother, its attacks on the church, and indeed those are all there. Uh, he explains to the Pope that this book 
is the root of all Jewish evil. Without it, they will not survive. Um, it takes one to know one. Only a Jew can understand the insights of the Talmud and recognize its staying power and how it really does sustain us. So the Pope accepts his arguments. Uh, in 1240, all of this is leading to a major, uh, major event. 1240, there, one, of the, one of the precursors to the event is a famous debate. Now, I'm going to talk today about the most famous of debates, but these debates were increasingly common in the Middle Ages. It was a way of like a showdown. Who's right, the Christians or the Jews? Well, who do you think? And who do you think from the Christian's perspective is going to win? These were almost always rigged. And so, what? You, you um, edit what your opponents can say. There's no freedom of speech. That's a, that's a modern American concept. You say what you say. They say what they say. You can, you can cut them off when they say something you don't like. And inevitably, you can determine the, 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 uh, the twists of the event. And then, of course, who's judging or Christian judges who say, yay, the good guys won. That's how. So he debates. Nicholas Odin has a debate with four rabbis, um, including Gedolim. Uh, Rabbeinu Yechiel is among them. And the smog of Moshe, Moshe, or Rav Moshe of Kuchi, um, who's one of the great Balitosvos, is among the four rabbis. Of course, they lose the debate. Um, the Jews actually have a friend, a bishop, Christian bishop, who's their only friend, who actually tries to defend them and say the whole thing was rigged and tried to set the record straight. And the bishop, his name, I mean, one, of these, one of these rare friends that Jews would enjoy, he's the bishop of Shantz. He steps forward and makes a plea on behalf of the Jews in front of the king. The king is King Louis IX. King Louis IX, who would become indeed Saint, so-called Saint Louis of the city. And um, I, I, it's shocking to me that the Jews of Saint Louis today, if they know, have any historical uh, identification, would even use that name. We should, we should, we should, he's, he is one of history's villains, saint, so-called Saint, saint Louis. Yeah, he's, he's terrible, as, you, as you're about to hear. So anyway, the bishop makes his plea before King Louis... Um, and in the middle of his plea on behalf of Klal Yisrael, he suddenly convulses and dies. And the, the Christians being literalists see this, of course, as a sign from God uh, that, oh, this is what happens when you take the side of the Jews and um, they'll go viral now. The king personally attends Jewish baptisms to make sure they start happening with greater frequency. And, then, he's, and, then, and, then, and then, then the decision is made. He sends agents out all over the French Jewish community, which is one of the great Jewish communities of the world in the 13th century. And they scour the land, and they're, they're able to find 1,200 Jewish manuscripts, mostly Talmuds, copies of Tosfos, and other great works. Now, 1,200 may not sound like a very large number, but to give you some context, um, Remember, this is a couple hundred years before, at least in the Western world, there's a printing press. These are all hand-copied manuscripts, and some of them are lifelong achievements. It took a whole life to just copy that Talmud by hand. And um, the king is able to gather these 1,200 precious manuscripts into 24 wagon loads. And on Erev Shabbos Kodesh, Parshas Chukas, comes out in June 12. 42, some actually dated two years later, 1244. There's some, some question about the exact dating. Uh, many books, including many of the Rambams again, are, are brought to the city center of Paris and burned. 
and it is perceived as an almost like a, a korban. That's what they call it. It's such a manifold tragedy. You have to realize these are the darkest years for Klal Yisrael. Torah is their only solace. And the Torah is being burned. And without the Torah, how are they going to teach the next generation? The, wor- the works are all hand copied. Many of them have these limited editions, which means um, we lost many of the Balitosfos for history, forever. The, uh, <clears throat> many see this as such a korban, the day becomes a fast day for years. And the Jew who takes it most to heart and is devastated is Rabbeinu Yonah himself. And he, remember, he opposed the Rambam, and now he sees what's happening, and he blames himself and his actions. He says, I- I'm at fault. We should never have attacked the Gadol, Rav Moshe bin Maimon. This is divine retribution because of the burning that took place eight years earlier that we, we instigated. And Rabbi Yonah vows publicly, he makes a neder that he's going to travel to Rambam's grave and seek mechila. Get, try, to, try to seek what you can do, by the way. You don't get the full mechila, but if you go with a minion to the grave of somebody that you wronged, you can ask for mechila, and as a bastin, they can do their part at least to try to get you whatever you can get as mechila in this world without the actual dead man's mechila. You remember the discussion in the Gemara in the first parak about uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Tavai on the... On the uh, by the grave of the man, did he get Mechila or not? But, um, but Rabbeinu Yonah vows that he's going to do this. He makes it as far as Toledo, and somehow, and the story's a little bit mysterious, he never makes it. He never comes to Tiberia. And um, some say that his Shari Tshuva was written as a kapara, as, a, as an atonement. In 1263, a couple decades later, um, Rabbeinu Yo- Yonah suddenly dies a terrible and strange death and some say maybe because he never fulfilled his vow to go get Mechila from the Rambam yeah I heard a uh, I guess more of, it's like a, it's a cinematic addition to the story yeah. so it's probably not like completely true yeah legends, are, legends abound but go ahead but quick it, quick quick yeah it was when uh, he, he was asking why like this tragedy happened and they brought it like in his dream they brought him to where, where the first book burning was, uh, and it was okay the same that sounds cinematic it could be true who knows yeah. who knows um, your St. Louis right Mr. St. Louis um, was the leader of the Sixth Crusade in 1249, a few years later. He actually will remain in Eretz Yisrael for five years. Um, you can see his own craftsmanship in the walls, the surviving walls around the city of Caesarea till today. He had a major hand in that and other, as- other actions in and around Eretz Yisrael. The Crusaders were, again, uh, some of our enemies uh, of history, and he certainly was part of that. I mentioned Rabbeinu Yechiel, who was Gadol in Paris during this time. He was the Rosh Hashiva in Paris. He had 300 students. One of his students is the Maharam. Um, in 1260, finally, he can't stay in Paris any longer, and he leads a large group of Balitosfos who emigrate to Eretz Yisrael. And if you remember, in 1211, about a half a century earlier, Rabbeinu Shimshan Mifshans, one of the earlier Balitosos had done the same, and now Rabbeinu Yechiel is doing the same. He's coming to Eretz Yisrael. It's the second wave. They settle in Akko, in the north, and he founds in Akko the Midrash Gadol de Paris of Akko. Remember how um, in history a lot of yeshivas retain the old country's name, like Mir and Tells? 
So you have the Paris Yeshiva in Akko. Um, little footnote in Akko, um, in 1285, right, a couple decades later, uh, Rabbein Yechiel has a student by the name of Rav Shlomo Petit, who tries again to revive the cherem against the Rambam, meaning the controversy still not died yet, but to give you a taste of where it's holding right now at the end of the 1200s, um, he attempts to put the Rambam in cherem in 1285, and the Rambam, his greatness became so established that actually what happens is R- R- Shlomo Petit was the one who was put in cherem. Others issued a cherem against him. So it's from this point that the tide starts to turn in favor of the Rambam, and of course, the Rambam's won. It, the Ramban is Rav Moshe ben Nachman. His dates are 1194 to 1271. He comes from Garona. He's Rabbein Yonah's cousin. He's an Elui. When he was 16 years old, we're now changing gears. We're talking about one of the great figures of all history, the great R- Nachmanides Ramban. When he was 16, he began one of his classes, the Milchemes Hashem, I mentioned this yesterday, the Mechamas Hashem was his own book that's a defense of the Rif against the attacks of the Bala Ma'or. I mentioned the Ravid had a similar book. Uh, the Ramban style. Anybody learn Ramban here? It's interesting that Svi happens to be learning uh, hum- uh, his parish on the Chumash, and he pulled me over with something that I just looked at uh, in, pre- in preparing today's shir. Um, the Ramban, you should all be blessed to learn a lot of Ramban in your life, one of the, one of the great um, scholars of all times. Um, so he is known in his style for being extremely sharp, extremely uh, sometimes harsh. He, for example, in Chumash, will take on the Ibn Ezra frequently. Um, he'll take on the Rambam. Yep, they're always shown him, and he's a gadol. Um, now, it's true. I just said that the controversy against the Rambam is mostly subsiding, but remember the dates. I said that was by 1285. The Ramban precedes this. I'm now moving back a little bit in time to the uh, to the earlier to the earlier 1200s. The Rambam, most the Ramban, and you should distinguish the pronunciation. Usually, we accent the first syllable Rambam. And then in the Ramban, it's the second syllable, Ramban. The Ramban, with an N at the end, sides with the opponents against the Rambam. But at the same time, he's reluctant to completely censure the giants, the Gadol. And by 1238, he actually criticizes anybody who, who's too, str- too strong against the Rambam. His approach is to simply argue with him, and it's a machlokis l'shem shemaim, and we're going to be learning, and in fact, at the end of this class, I'm going to be going into depth about one of their central arguments about the end of days. The Rambam holds his view, the Ramban, a totally different, in many ways, a very different view. Um, the Ramban, for his part, explains the Mora Nevuchim. He says, you know, the Mora Nevuchim was not intended for broad use. It was just for those who had anyway been led astray by philosophy, okay, at least have the record straightened out by, by learning the Mordevuchim. But that was his way of understanding it by putting it in a box and saying it's not meant for the average Jew. The Ramban then would say about, let's say, our generation studying the Mordevuchim that it would be inappropriate. We're not philosophical per se. I mean, unless you happen to be one of the exceptional few, but we wouldn't need the Mordevuchim to straighten us out. We need other things to straighten ourselves out, but not that. Ramban was a physician. He was wealthy. He supported his own yeshiva. Uh, many of his students 
the Rashba, the Ritva, many others would lead the next generation around the world. Um, when the Castile is overthrown, so the Ramban's brother becomes a high-ranking Jew called a court Jew. He has a certain power, and he helps strengthen the Ramban's yeshiva. So Ramban does very well, and he's recognized as this great figure throughout most of his life. He's in the Castile, he's in Catalonia. Uh, the Ramban writes Chidushim on most of the Talmud. Um, his style, now Ramban is Sephardi, and he comes from the Sephardi tradition, but his style actually reflects the Toskos. There's, oh, there's increasing overlap between the worlds. He writes a classic book called Torah Sa'adam on, uh, on, on the laws of mourning, Avelus. He writes Kshar HaGmul, which takes up major themes of reward and punishment in the world. He has many, many classics. Um, a little bit to give a taste of the Ramban's to Torah. Uh, Ramban teaches us the uh, Torah prohibition of forgetting the miracles of Mount Sinai. Listen to these. Uh, I, I include these not just to give you a taste of the Ramban, but I don't think you could be a knowledgeable Jew if you don't know some of these central ideas. You don't, you don't understand Amunah. People say if you want to get the basic... Oh, excuse me. I just referred to this. So one of the four things that the Ale Shore says a student has to know before leaving yeshiva is, in addition to Perkyavos with Rebbein Yonah, you have to know Chumash with the papers of the Ramban. Chumash is the essentials of our Amuna. It's long. It's a project. Svi uh, is working on it now, but we should all be working on it. In his commentary, he says, you can't forget, there's an Isidhi Reiser forgetting Harsinai, and he points this out. It's based partly on the Kuzari and others, but the Ramban points out, you know, all other faiths in the world owe their belief system to an individual, a small group, an elite. And then whatever they say, okay, that's what we believe. So take, my, take their word for it. Okay, Jesus, disciples, okay, so you said it. Muslims, same thing. He said, Am Yisrael is unique on so many levels, but one of the basic points, listen to this idea if you've never heard this before, maybe you do know this, but it's such a central idea in Judaism. Am Yisrael had collective revelation at Har Sinai. Har Sinai is the defining moment in our history. We all were there, as Chazal say, even the smallest shifcha, the maidservant, was on a higher level of prophecy than even Yechezkel Hanavi. We all heard it, and from that generation to the present, we've been transmitting it to our kids. Ish mipi ish, it's this week's parsha, last week's parsha, we've been transmitting it father to son, and therefore the Ramban points out this is not relying on the elites. It's true, Moshe Rabbeinu brought us the Torah, but we were all there, we all saw it, and we've been transmitting it consistently every year at Pesach Seder and otherwise, teaching Torah to our kids. Therefore, it's not logically possible to have been made up. Nobody could have come along and said, hey, let's make up Judaism, and foist it on the world, and everybody would believe us, because it's intrinsic to our story that we all were there. And there's never been a break. Ever since that point, that's one of the reasons why we're telling our whole, whole history here. It's one consistent movement through history. Points out the Ramban. Yeah, please. What could someone like, for example, Muhammad or even the apostles say to get somebody to believe them so much without them seeing it? See, belief's an easy one. It's related. It's interesting you're asking this because it's actually related conceptually to a discussion we had earlier today, and that is... Um, if you want to believe, you're already 99% of the way there. Yeah, but like, what do you mean? If you want to believe, it's not logical. If you want to believe remember the credos of, of early Christianity, Tertullian teaches um, 
right? Credo quia absurdum, I believe he didn't teach those exact words, but some variation, I believe because it's absurd, when you starting with a foregone conclusion, everything's possible. Our system stands up to logic. Most can't say that statement. Ramban teaches elsewhere, in Parshish Kedoshim, when we read the Pasuk Kedoshim to you, be holy, um, that's a mitzvah in itself that can't be delineated by the Torah. The Torah gives us 613, but the Torah is teaching you an entire life system of how to be a mensch, even in ways that the Torah doesn't spell out. And if there is something the Torah doesn't spell out, you have to use your knowledge of other Torah to fill in the blanks, to be able to, uh, to put it all together. It teaches the corollary of don't be a novel b'shusa Torah, don't be a despicable person, but at the same time be from. It's that they don't go together. Uh, a similar pasuk in Parshas Veschonan, Vaasisa hayashar vato b'nei Hashem, you should do what's straight and good in Hashem's eyes. Ramban says that's also such, a, such an imperative. Do the right thing. Do what he calls pshara. When necessary, make a compromise. You know what compromise is? Compromise is something that neither party is satisfied with and both can live with it. Do that. It's the right thing often. He says, go like a chassid, like a real, a real righteous man, always goes beyond the letter of the law, even in those areas the Torah doesn't explicitly spell out. Okay, I'm going to begin the next story. I don't know how, how far we're going to be able to get, but it's the central story in all of history. I'm sorry some of our regulars are not here today. Uh, by the end of the 13th century, the Christians had reconquered all of Spain from the Muslims, which is not good for the Jews. And the situation has been got, getting steadily worse for Klal Yisrael. What was once the Holy Roman Empire has, over the, over the centuries, lost control over much of Europe. And what you have in its wake are different Christian factions. We've talked about the Franciscans, the Dominicans. They're just two examples fighting with one another for supremacy. The Pope is mired with all kinds of scandals. It's a mess. The church splits. We saw this, the, uh, the Great Schism in 1054. Um, the Christians realized that they're going to have a long road ahead of them. The Crusaders are starting to wane too. And um, their fight, their ongoing battle with the Muslims that lasts till today, uh, they realized they're not going to convert the Muslims, nor are they going to overthrow them. And yet they're in desperate need of a victory. Oh, look, they're the Jews. That's the... That's the um, Background, necessary background to understand what's about to unfold. Spanish Jewry is, at this point, the largest and wealthiest in the world. There is an Inquisition, and I have to define what that means. We've mentioned it before. It started in France, but it moves to Spain, slowly erodes the Jewish community. Here's what the, here's what the Inquisition is. The purpose of the Inquisition is Christians against Christians. It's technically not an institution that persecutes Jews, but okay, it does persecute Jews. How so? The, the, um, here's the situation. The, um, the Inquisition is meant to make sure that Catholics remain Catholics and don't lapse. And it went after anybody who was suspicious who suspected of lapsing. 
But what happened was, of course, in these days, these are the days of forced compuls compulsory conversions, and many Jews, as we just saw under uh, Nicholas Stonin, were forcibly converted, but they didn't mean it. They, they, they didn't keep their fingers crossed, that's a Christian idea, but they certainly didn't have their, uh, they, didn't, they, they, they weren't sincere, and so they secretly were practicing Jews while outwardly being forced to, to behave like Christians, and the Inquisition went out, targeted them. These secret Jews, uh, sometimes called later on Muranos and other 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 names, that's a later name though. We don't we're not we haven't gotten there yet. Um, would be would be would be the subject of the Inquisition. Go ahead. But that being said, the, the religious Jews were fine. It I generally spared the, the Jews who remain Jews. Right, that's right. Yeah, it generally spared them. At least that was their policy. Now, you have to realize, the church is so corrupt, one of their, and, and very, very wealthy, how did the church acquire so much of his wealth? We've mentioned this before, the indulgences. They sold indulgences. Now, one way you could, you could get an indulgence, what is an indulgence? Indulgence means you're effectively buying your way into the world to come. Here's, you know, check your money order. We, we take credit card. Um, you, if you were wealthy, then you could buy the world to come. Easy, quick, quick way, right? You could be a wicked, wicked uh, villain, a, a, a criminal, but if you paid the money to the church, the church, church was happy to provide you with a place to world to come. But you know, there's not just a uh, world to come for um, the wealthy. Even the poor can can potentially buy indulgences through merits, and it's extremely meritorious to go out and, well, among other things, convert a Jew. Another feather in the cap. Go fish for Christians. Fish is a major theme in Christianity. That's why you see it on their bumper stickers, lots of fish. That's, that, 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 indicates, that indicates they're the proselytizers, they're, they're missionaries. Um, the, uh, you can kill Jews. That'll, that's another way, another ticket to the world to come, but go convert them. So these are the age, this is the age now of, of mass conversions, often insincere, followed by this, this wicked inquisition, and, and we're starting to see the recipe for disaster in, in Jewish in the Spanish community of, of, of um, for the Jewish people. Um, the means of the Inquisition were especially medieval. Terrible, terrible. Uh, uh, they would, they, they somehow figured that they would um, get confessions by torturing people, by torturing its subjects. And somehow, you know, it, it isn't real unless it's under duress. Yes, of course, I converted. Yes, I, I, I ate matzah for Pesach. And that was somehow accepted as a, as, 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 as a belief. But um, again, don't confuse rational thought hey, with what went on in the church. What was that? With, with America and your town, though. Yeah, it did. So I, the truth is I didn't get to it today, and it's such an important story. We're going to start with it, but I encourage you to come on time tomorrow. I'm going I'm to pick right up where we're leaving off. All of this, then, is backdrop, setting the stage for the, uh, the story of what's called the Disputation of Barcelona. Uh, the C is usually not pronounced. Barcelona, as most ignoramuses call it, um, that takes place, which is arguably the most famous and dramatic of all of the disputations that takes place, and not the least of which is because the great Ramban himself takes front and center stage and uh, does one of the great acts of Kiddush Hashem in all of history. Bezrash Hashem, first of all.